0: Well, good evening, everyone. Um, if you have your Bible with you, would you open it up to Genesis chapter 17, please? Genesis chapter 17, and we'll read the first three verses there. Um, that will be the first passage that we will read this evening. In 1999, uh, this is going to be hard to uh, believe, but in 1999, the song, I Can Only Imagine, was released by Mercy Me. And it became a hit, not just in Christian music circles, but in the wider population as well. And I had become a Christian by this point in my life. I was just a baby Christian, had only been a Christian for less than a year. So I remember um, maybe arrogantly being put off by some of the lyrics. Uh, the, The chorus of that song goes like this. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still?" Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? And I remember thinking at the time, well, I know exactly what we're going to do when we come into the presence of Jesus. We will fall on our knees and you can just kind of put the rest of those things off to the side because that's what we'll do. Dance for you, Jesus. Give me a break. You know, that's the way I thought about it. Hmm. Well, let's look at that this evening. Indeed, falling on our knees or faces is the response to entering the presence of God in the Old Testament, at least when we're told what the bodily response is when someone comes uh, into the presence of God or has a vision of God. And when we're not told, it's often implied that this one falls down in worship. Uh, A couple of examples, first in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make a covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, here's my covenant, and so on and so forth. Now, we're not told exactly how God appeared to Abram on this occasion, but he did, and Abram's response was to fall on his face as he hears God talking to him. We turn to Ezekiel, and again this is a sampling, but turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel. In verse 1 it sets the, uh, sets the context. Now it came to pass in the 13th year, in the 4th month, In the 30th year, in the 4th month, on the 5th day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And it describes the throne room of God and the angelic uh, four living creatures who are there. But then he describes God himself, beginning in verse 26, sitting on the throne. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire stone, And the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber, with the appearance of fire all around within it. From the appearance of his waist downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with the brightness all around it, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. And this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. But it's interesting that it's not even God himself or even a vision of God. Obviously here it's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord that Ezekiel sees. But people often fall on their face in in awe and fear and to worship, even in... In just the evidence of the presence of God, that God's not actually there, but they, they see that God is close, that God is near. Uh, a good example of this might be in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you turn over there. 1 Kings chapter 18 is the occasion of the, of the famous back and forth between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Where he asked the people, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you limp along? If God's God, choose him. If Baal's God, follow him. But the people answered not a word. And so we remember the challenge, right? Uh, Whichever God will send down fire to consume the, the sacrifice, that's the one true God. And the people say, good, that's what we'll do. And Elijah has them bring in the water all and pour it all over the sacrifice. And there's a trough around the altar and the water all goes in there. And fire of the Lord, in verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. I mean, just totally consumed everything. Now when the people saw it, what did they do? They fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And ultimately they're going to do what um, Elijah asked them to do, at least for a very short period of time here. Fire from the Lord. But it's not just that falling on your face before God in fear or awe or worship is, is the right response before God. I would take it a step further that that response of falling on your face before someone in awe and worship is reserved only for God. That's that's not a response that you should do for anyone or anything else. Uh, Turn to the end of uh, your Bible, to the book of Revelation, Revelation 22. Revelation 22 and verses 8 and 9, as this vision is coming to a close. Revelation 22 and verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. What's he saying? Don't do that. Don't fall down and worship me. Don't fall before your face before me, even though I'm the angel who's revealed all of this. I'm just your fellow servant. You only worship God in this way. Only take this kind of posture before God. Now, we're not probably in that situation very often where we have to tell somebody, you know, don't worship me. I'm not the one you, uh, you need to worship. Uh, I can think of one time that it felt like I, I came close with someone. Um, when I was in college, uh, there was a preacher by the name of D. Bowman. Uh, he's preached here. You, you know D. Bowman? Uh, he's very well known, he's passed now from this life, but he's very well known, and there's a big lectureship at Florida College where I was going to school, and, and that night there were probably 2,000 people in the audience as he's giving this sermon, and he's talking about preachers, and he's talking about young preachers who are coming up, and at one point he says, young men like Reagan McLenning, and I'm like, what, what What are we talking about? Wow. Afterward, um, there was, you know, you mingle with other people, you meet new people, and so uh, so I go up and I introduce myself to this lady and she's there with somebody else that I knew. And I said, hi, I'm Reagan McClinney." And she audibly gasped. She goes, oh, you're the one. I was like, no, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one, not me, right? I'm your fellow servant. Don't do that. Uh, but there are some occasions, uh, I think, in the New Testament where something similar like that happens, right? In Acts, uh, Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas... Are mistaken for gods in Lystra. Uh, Remember, Paul healed this man who had been crippled in his legs from his mother's womb. And the people there in Lystra, they run out and they say, The gods are among us. And they think, uh, you know, Barnabas is Zeus and and Paul is Hermes. And they run out to worship them. But Paul says in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things. To the living God only God deserves to have people fall down in awe and worship before him and I think maybe it's built into us as human beings this desire to worship God um, I'd be hard pressed to absolutely prove that but maybe there's some scriptures that seem to indicate that to a certain degree. And sometimes we misplace that as human beings. We worship all sorts of things um, that we ought not. And by that, I don't just mean that we exalt them above God, but but there is this idea of kind of hero worship. You know, we put people up on a, on a pedestal. Um, we do that with athletes. Uh, we do that. We have a, a whole show called American Idol, right, that we put these people up on a pedestal. Uh, we see that with um, with people in a religious context. Uh, preachers fall into that sort of trap, right, right? Uh, I was reading an article earlier this week, this uh, megachurch pastor got in big trouble because a sermon got published online where he was just berating the congregation because it was his 15th, 20th anniversary or whatever, and they didn't get him a nice enough gift. They got him a watch, but it only cost a few hundred dollars, and he said, you know, these kind of gifts show the kind of attitude that you have, that you don't care about me enough, and you don't care about God enough. Well, let's be honest, it wasn't about God, right? It was about him. And so this kind of hero worship is something that people fall into the trap of sometimes. And there are others who accept that kind of hero worship. But falling down on your face before someone is supposed to be something that is only reserved for God. And one of the things that sets Jesus apart as God instead of just a prophet was that he accepted this kind of worship on a number of occasions. But notice Luke 17 with me. Turn over there, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. In verse 11, um, he's passing through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Uh, he enters a, a village, and ten men who were lepers standing a long way off, they cry out to him and they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And his response is, Go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was, verse 14, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. He's glorifying God and thanking Jesus. And he was a Samaritan. Now, based on everything that we've talked about and studied so far, Maybe Jesus would be patient with this man. He's a Samaritan after all. He doesn't have all the background that the Jews had. And we would expect him to say, you know, stand up, don't worship me like that, if he was just a prophet. But Jesus does not do that. Jesus answered and said, we're not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. In fact, he congratulates him. He, he commends him for what he has done on this occasion. And, and that's not surprising to us. We're believers and we believe that Jesus uh, is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he was God in the flesh when he was here. And that's what we would expect in heaven, too: this worship of Jesus where we fall down on our face before him. Um, look at one more passage before. This all kind of takes a turn. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is exalted because of his humility. His obedience to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But Paul says in verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God also... Has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. In the ancient world, that's the way of describing all of the realms, all of the beings, all of the people. What are they going to do? At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that's not going to happen on earth. We know that's not going to happen now. There are many who not, not only don't confess Jesus as Lord, but they curse his name. They deny him in all sorts of horrible and blasphemous ways. But there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Agreed? Amen. But then we get to the book of Revelation and something weird happens. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 1, if you would. In Revelation chapter 1, John receives revelation, a vision. And it's a series of of visions, all contained in one, and it's so reminiscent of so many of the visions that we see in the Old Testament, Um, even what we saw with Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah's vision, Zachariah's, some of his visions, um, all of those things are kind of echoed and mirrored in what John sees here. And in John chapter 1, Jesus appears to, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears to John. And John describes him in terms that are reserved only for God the Father, for God Almighty, for Yahweh. And we see in verse 17, um, And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. Appropriate. I mean, that's what we would expect, right? But he laid his right hand on me, that's the hand of authority and power, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and who uh, was who, who dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And he says, I'm going to ask you to write these things, put it in a book, and so on and so forth. So, so he puts his hand on him and he says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's really the opposite of what we see with uh, people interacting with God throughout the rest of the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, for example... The people, when they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses is recounting this, you can look in Exodus and see the original account, and it all jives up, right? But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, they come before God at the mountain, and I believe that God speaks the Ten Commandments. And the people, they run away. Uh, They don't just fall down before God, they run away from God. They get as far away as they can, and they tell Moses, you know, you go speak to God, why should we die? Because they were greatly afraid to even come near the mountain where there's fire and smoke and God is speaking. And so Moses, he takes this to God and says, you know, this is what the people say and so forth. And God says in verses 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy 5, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words which you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, That they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments. That it might be well with them and with their children forever. And this is not unique. That's what God says. This is the correct response when you come into my presence. You should fear me. Take off your sandals for you're on holy ground. Right? And yet Jesus says to John, do not be afraid. That's strange, isn't it? Unexpected. Then in Revelation chapter 4, there's the, a throne scene. A throne scene. We're familiar with this. That's what Ezekiel saw. He saw God on the throne, right? And we have the, the four living creatures, and we have this, this same idea of praising God. Um, it's, again, reminiscent of those throne scenes of the Old Testament. And, and all come and worship the Lamb. Because he is worthy to open the seals that that reveals the mouth of God. Did you notice how we read through those and they fall on their face and then God speaks? Well, this is God speaking through these seals that are going to be opened. And so they praise the Lamb. Every creature, chapter 5 and verse 13. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Huh? sounds familiar. And such as are in the sea and all that are in them... I heard them saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures say amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Right response. They all fall down and worship him. We're, we're told in chapter 4 uh, these elders who are sitting on thrones themselves with crowns themselves, they cast their crowns before him and then fall down in worship to him. Well, the lamb starts opening these seals. The first seal releases a white horse whose rider has a bow and arrows and wears a crown to conquer. The second seal, there's a red horse whose rider has a great, red great sword to, to take all peace from the earth. The third seal is opened by the lamb and it releases a black horse with a pair of scales to make food scarce and expensive on the earth. The fourth seal releases a pale horse whose rider is death. And he kills over a fourth of the earth. The fifth seal is opened, and it shows those killed for their faithfulness to the word of God who, who cry out for vengeance. Then the sixth seal shows the reaction of the unrighteous when they come before the throne of God. Read with me in chapter six, beginning in verse twelve. I looked. When he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth, great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Not just falling on their face, not just running away. They want the mountains to cover them up so that they cannot see this one. Verse 17... For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? What's the answer? Who is able to stand before God? No one, right? No one. Or is it? The scene changes. And John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Another angel comes from the east, and he cries out to stop the other four angels from harming the earth until the servants of God are marked on their foreheads. 144,000 are marked, but they're from the tribes of Israel. Not the actual tribes of the nation. It doesn't quite match up. And it's 12,000 from each of these tribes. But they aren't all of the people who are righteous. There are many more. And what is their reaction to the lamb on the throne? Well, let's go to chapter 7. Notice first in verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Again, that's what we would expect. Even with these angels, even with the living creatures even with the elders. And I want you to go back to verse 9. And after these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all together they say, verse 12, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know... (laughs) So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. He comes down off of the throne to be with them. They shall neither hunger anymore or thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They stand. They stand before God and His throne. They stand before the Lamb. These are those who overcame, not by their own power and might, but they overcome through the blood of the Lamb. They overcome because they served the Lamb. They overcome by the word of their testimony to others on the Lamb's behalf. They overcome because they did not love their physical lives to the death, but they wanted to live spiritually. And these come before the throne, and they come before God, and instead of falling on their faces, maybe for the first time in the whole Bible, They stand before the throne. Well, what got me thinking about all of this? Well, it was our our Hebrews class. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, on Wednesday nights we're studying the let us passages in Hebrews. And there's some phrases that just almost don't compute at least for me. In verse 16 of chapter 4, let us therefore come boldly. Maybe your translation says, let us draw near with confidence. So we're not like the unrighteous saying, let the mountains fall on us. We're not even like the children of Israel saying, we're going to get away as far as we can. We're not even like uh, Ezekiel Um, Falling down on our face before God We are drawing near to the throne And we're doing so boldly We're doing so with confidence That we may obtain mercy And find grace to help in time of need Go to chapter 10 and verse 19 The image here is of entering the temple and specifically entering the holy place of the temple, which only the high priest could do, only once a year, only after extensive sacrifices had been made. And if he didn't do the right sacrifices, what they believed, rightly so, is that they would be struck dead. He would be struck dead if he came into the presence of God um, without being made clean. But in verse 19, what is it that we see? Therefore, brethren... Having boldness, again that same word, confidence, to enter the holiest, the the holy of holies. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We as Christians are supposed to come before God's throne with confidence, with boldness. And even on that day where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, John says in the first epistle that bears his name, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, And now little children abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We can stand before God, not not fall before God, but stand before God with confidence. How? On the basis of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him because of the blood of the Lamb. And that's a powerful change in our thinking, or it should be a powerful change in our thinking. Being able to stand before the throne with confidence and boldness shows three things. Number one, being able to stand before the throne of God with confidence and boldness shows how great Christ's sacrifice really is. The greatness of sin in terms of its power, in terms of its universality, in terms of how it separates us from God shows the power of Christ's sacrifice. To where we don't you know, we, we talk about it in these terms, right? You know, just uh, uh, I want to be a doorman in heaven. You know, I just want to sneak in the back door. You know, wh- whatever job I get, just let me be in there. I just want to be a janitor in heaven. Well, well janitor is a great job. That's fine. But we're supposed to go into heaven with boldness, with confidence. We're supposed to enter into the presence of God with that kind of confidence. And that's a far cry from where we were, isn't it? Uh, Romans chapter 3 is perhaps uh, the most vivid of Paul's descriptions of our life in sin before being made right by the blood of Jesus. And in order to do it, he quotes um, from from the book of Psalms. In verse 9 of Romans chapter 3, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is the kind of person that we would expect God to humble. For God to bring down. You have no fear of me. Let me show you who I am. And you will fear. And you will cower. And you will fall before me. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now how do we go from that? And that vivid description to having boldness. To enter God's presence with righteousness and peace. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Romans 5 and verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Without strength, ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Reconciliation means to be brought back in, right? That we are we're drawing near to God once more that we can come close to him even though we were sinners and enemies without strength and ungodly. Being able to stand before the throne of God shows how great Christ's sacrifice is. No matter what the sin, no matter how dire, Christ's sacrifice can make it right. And and that's the second thing kind of adjacent to it. Being able to stand before the throne of God shows how powerful God's grace is. Maybe God's grace is seen most powerfully in Christ's sacrifice But God's grace is seen not just that Christ was sacrificed so that we don't have to burn in hell. Think about it in those terms. But so that we with boldness can enter into fellowship with God. Something that we do not deserve by any means. This incredible blessing. And God's grace is powerful enough for us to stand before the throne. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But have you ever fallen on your face in prayer to God out of sorrow and shame for your sin? And and maybe it wasn't the physical posture. Maybe you didn't literally fall on your face. but, But the shame, the embarrassment, the realization that you can't fix it, all of those things mingled together Or you fall on your face. Especially if you're someone who knew at that time the righteousness and holiness of God, the love of God. And to betray all of that with sin, in that moment, in that moment when you fell on your face, the thought of standing before God with boldness and confidence, I don't know about you, but to me, that would have been totally foreign. To get up from this posture of of abject poverty, of poor in spirit, to rise from that all the way to the throne of God with confidence seems like um, a bridge too far. And yet that's how powerful God's grace is. Ephesians chapter 2, again, Paul is describing what we were and then what we are. What we were without Christ, what we are in Christ because of His grace. Ephesians chapter 2. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 1. Verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature, that is habitual practice, children of wrath just as the others. You want to talk about long established routines? That's what he's talking about here. We're children of wrath. That's what we're always doing. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And not just saved, but you're raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're raised from where we were in the death and darkness of sin and made to sit together with Christ in the heavenly places both now and forever. But that's pretty general. Let's see if we can get specific. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, When Tyler was here, he used this passage, talked about this passage a little bit. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. Ten. Uh, we got a good complete list here. We'll inherit the kingdom of God. That's where you were. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were set aside, made holy, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of all of us. Maybe not these specific sins, but sins like them. But we were washed. We were sanctified and we were justified by the blood of Jesus. That's how powerful God's grace is. So being able to stand before the throne shows us how great Christ's sacrifice is, how powerful God's grace is. And then finally, number three, how grateful we should be. What are they doing? These who are standing before the throne of God, they are praising and serving and worshiping him forever i mean how how into something do you have to be to stand the entire time especially when you could sit you know there are other options maybe it's a a sign of getting older there's been a couple of concerts the last few years where i've gone to it and and i'm sitting down and people are standing up in front of me younger people and i'm like i wish they would just sit down you know just sit down so we can all see you stand i have to stand that sort of thing right you have to be really into it to just stand the whole time, right? Maybe, maybe with sporting events, we think about a really great fan base. You know, what they'll do is they'll stand the whole time. That shows how enthusiastic they are about that. And uh, we all know a fan base like that, right? Texas A&M, you know, that they're famous for that, standing the whole game. And that's easy to do when you're playing Alabama. Even easier when maybe you're beating Alabama. We can stand and we can cheer and we're excited about it. And I don't even need that seat. A few years ago, I went and saw a play Nevada. They just beat them like a drum, you know. About the mid-third quarter, I saw a lot of people sitting down. Because it's just tough to keep that kind of enthusiasm, to be into it, unless it's something really, really special. Well, what is more special What is more special than being able to stand before the throne of God with confidence? Clean, holy, justified. That's easy. Or it should be. For those of us who know what those things mean. And the more clearly we see our sins the more clearly we can see the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, the power of God's grace, and be oh so grateful that He saved me. Standing before the throne? Standing? Incredible. I can only imagine. Can you? Can you imagine what it will be like when the saved, when the saved get to heaven. We, we rearranged a song one time to say it that way. You know, whoever they are, the saved, when they get to heaven, are going to be standing before God. Can you imagine when we all get to heaven? In God's presence forevermore. Well, if you're uncertain about that, That's not the picture that's painted in the Bible. You're supposed to have confidence that even when Jesus appears in judgment, have confidence that you can stand before him because you've made your life right with him, that you've been saved by his grace and through his sacrifice. And if you've not yet come to Christ in humble submission to put Christ on in baptism, to make him Lord of your life, to confess him as Lord and Christ and the Son of God, that stands before you even this evening. And if you're already a Christian and, and you realize that there's something that you need to confess so that Christ can make you clean and holy, so that you might stand before him in confidence, now is the time. There is none better. Won't you come now? While together we stand and while we sing. Oh, happy day.